Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Hello again and thank you for joining us on the podcast Space Nuts, episode 101. We made it past 100. We don't feel any older. Uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always is uh, Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm, I am I'm, quite well. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you're not feeling any older. I feel older every day. <laughs> yeah, I think Could it goes be. with the territory. Yeah. You, no, look at, you look at such old stuff, I mean, it, it's got to rub off. Yeah, rubs off a bit, yeah. <laughs> now, today, talk- we, we've got some exciting things to talk about. Uh, one is the Australian federal budget. <laughs> I was just listening for the crickets. But there's, there's exciting news within that for your organisation, so we're going to br- uh, briefly mention that. Uh, we're also going to talk about um, um, galactic mergers, uh, ancient galaxy mergers. Now, we, we do know, and we've talked about before, the merger between our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, which is happening next week, or is it in a couple of million years? But uh, we'll get around to it. But, th- but this is th- th- these are mergers that happened way back, and they've now... Um, uh, been able to find out more about them. Uh, we also are going to look at another cataclysmic event, and that is the um, uh, the uh, a supernova. Um, but they've found uh, through again your um, your telescope uh, evidence of a survivor of a supernova, which is uh, very exciting. And finally, we'll wrap up with a listener question. This comes from an airline pilot who uh, wants to know a bit more about noctilucent clouds. And she's even sent us a photo of one she took over Russia, which I will try and get put online so you can have a squiz at, um, as, at what, she's, uh, what she's got. It's amazing. Anyway, uh, we'll get to that a little later. But first, uh, Fred, uh, budget news. Dun, dun, dong. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought that we would have been celebrating the budget? But we are. <laughs> Not many people so... do. <clears throat> no, that's right. <clears throat> Uh, excuse me. The um, 2018 federal budget uh, contains what's being described as seed funding uh, for the new Australian Space Agency. You and I have talked about the Space Agency before, and we've probably said more than we should on what it might be called, whether it's ASA or <laughs> it's not like NASA. And there are there are other acronyms that people have suggested. Yes, there, there were a few real rippers. Not fit for broadcast. <laughs> That's right. So, um, but so yes, we've talked about it before, but it's now a reality, uh, Andrew. Well, Shazza was uh, a good one. Shazza <laughs> yeah, was a really Shazza. good one. Very Aussie. <clears throat> the Shazza, the Southern Hemisphere one. Yeah. So, uh, what's the story? Well, uh, the government is going to put fifty million dollars into the new space agency. We also now know that the director for uh, the first year will be the former boss of the CSIRO, uh, Dr. Megan Clark. Uh, She has basically been charged, or she was charged last year, with undertaking a review of Australian space activities with the the idea of 
um, you know, pulling all this together under the umbrella of the space agency. And to some extent, her review was upstaged because they announced the review last July, and in September they said, well, we, we're going to have the space agency anyway. Uh, but now what's happened is that the announcement has been made. We know much more about what the structure of the space agency might be. What we don't know is where it's going to be yet. Um, a number of states have put their hands up to to um, host the new space agency. Uh, in some ways, that doesn't matter because when you're dealing with space, uh, <clears throat> the whole world is part and parcel of yeah, it. Yeah. But of course, there are there are centres of of activity within uh, Australia, and and actually South Australia is one of them. There's a lot of space work goes on down there. Mm. So, well, histor- uh, historically, it's where we really started our um, yeah. our space program in Woomera. With- with Woomera, that's that's mm. absolutely right. So there's all that tradition. There's new ideas. There's new industries. There's new space, um, you know, enterprise going on, uh, all of which will now come under the overall umbrella of the of the new space agency. The 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 thing and and you know, just binding this little bit up because it's really just a, a spot a news flash item. But the thing that is, I think. Uh, really promising is what we might earn from this because uh, um, we in Australia currently generate round about four billion dollars worth of activity uh, in the space industry and that covers everything from communications to building little CubeSats and all the rest of it. Um, That uh, is about one percent of the current global market for space activity so it's round about 400 billion dollars. There's now a forecast, uh, well, it was made last year, in fact, but it's um, it's being reiterated that within three, three uh, decades, so perhaps the next 30 years, that space industry is expected to worth to be worth more than three and a half trillion US dollars. So it's on its way up. Uh, It's a big ticket item. And we uh, we are going to be well placed in Australia uh, to be part and parcel of that, along, of course, with all the other national space agencies around the world. I mean, we we're never going to be a NASA, but we will always work with them and the Japanese space agencies and, of course, now the New Zealand space agency as well. So we've got a, a twin not very far away. And we are planning to send a kangaroo to the moon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Uh, you imagine uh, how far it would jump. Uh, they do. <laughs> yes, that would be extraordinary. I uh, don't think you could find a helmet to fit its head, though. Um, yeah, and, and how much was the uh, the budget figure? Fifty million, uh, which is uh, just about uh, Fred's salary, <laughs> and that is it. All gone. Dreams in your dreams. <laughs> Uh, it's actually, I have to say, um, Andrew, it is more than I expected it to be. I mm. thought it was going to be less than that, so uh, it's a nice surprise. It is indeed. Well, there'll be more to talk about as that develops, so that's terrific. Now let's turn our attention, Fred, to a, a couple of things, or one thing in particular at this point in time, uh, involving a couple of telescopes that have been looking into deep space, and they have found evidence of massive conglomerations of uh, forming galaxies in the early universe. This uh, is quite a discovery. It is. Um, and it's another of these discoveries, Andrew, that, you know, it's not quite rewriting the textbooks, but it's certainly uh, involved with um, re, uh, uh, 
you know, generating a major rethink of our of our ideas. So what's been observed, and you're quite right, it's in fact with a number of telescopes, perhaps the most important of them is uh, the European Southern Observatory's uh, Atacama Large Millimeter Array Telescope, otherwise known as ALMA. Mm. ALMA uh, sits up there 5,000 meters above sea level in the Atacama Desert, an amazing place. Um, that's a radio telescope. Uh, so uh, the, the instrument that's been used on ALMA has allowed astronomers to reveal that there is uh, deep in space, which means far back in time, there is a, a, a kind of what is being described as a proto-cluster of galaxies. It's a, it's a cluster of galaxies, but it's clearly in a state of evolution because these galaxies are all packed tightly together and the gravitational interactions between them because they're so tightly packed and also because there's such huge reservoirs of hydrogen as there was uh, uh, in the early universe, that's generating... Um, what we call starbursts, a starburst of, of star formation. Uh, and so this, this strange cluster that's been detected by these telescopes um, is unexpected because of where it is. In, in, and by where it is, I mean it's distance from us. And by that, I mean how far back in time we're looking. Yeah. Um, just to, to recap, of course, whenever we look out into space, we're looking back in time. And in this case, we're looking back to when the universe was only about one and a half billion years old. It's back to a, uh, you know, you're looking back almost the, the full age of the universe, which is about 13.8 billion years. Now, the, the, the sort of standard model of galaxy formation and galaxy cluster formation says that, yes, these uh, intensely active clusters of galaxies should exist. They, the, all the theoretical models predict that that's going to happen in the very early universe where the, 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 the sort of virgin hydrogen fuel uh, that's in the early universe is starting to be used up in stars. So you would expect to see them, but you don't expect to see them until roughly three billion years after the Big Bang not um, one and a half billion years after the Big Bang, which is what these observations actually have revealed. Mm. So that is why uh, the, uh, you know, the, 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 it's back to the drawing board for the, for the theoretical astronomers who model these things. It's, it's like so many of the discoveries that we're making about the very early universe. We seem to be constantly finding that things happened earlier than we thought they did. Um, like the first stars forming and things of that sort um, within the first billion years. So uh, we, it, and I guess the reason for this, just to perhaps put a, a word of explanation on it in case there are people out there thinking, well, you just got it wrong, didn't you? Well, you that's doing. exactly what I was thinking. I was going to say, yeah. could they have just made a mistake with their timing? I mean, one and a half billion versus three billion. It's not a big stretch. It's not. No, that's right. But um, but what what's happening? The reason why all this sort of stuff is showing up is that we now have bigger and much more effective telescopes that allow us uh, to to look back at these times, which we didn't have before. So when these models were were being proposed, um, probably a decade or so ago, we couldn't see back this far uh, with the kind of detail that we can now see. And so the information simply wasn't there, that you needed to be able to account for uh, for galaxy clusters occurring so early in the history of the universe. Um, it What it suggests, uh, and this is a fairly naive interpretation, but naivety is one of my specialities, Andrew, as you know. Oh, I'm, um, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. What it suggests is that 
the early universe, and by that I mean within the first, you know, couple of billion years of the history of the universe, was a far more dynamic and active place than we envisaged. We, we knew it was a wild and woolly place because the, the Big Bang was still fairly recent history at that time. Um, and so there was still this conversion of the, you know, I mean, the, 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 the radiation field turned into matter quite early on. But this process of, of hydrogen uh, 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 gathering together um, to form, well, first of all, stars and then galaxies, and probably all effectively at the same time, this gravitational collapse of, of clouds of hydrogen to do all that, that seems to have happened much more intensively uh, than we previously thought. And it's the new observations uh, that are revealing that thanks to new technology. Mm, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. And I still can't get my head around the fact that everything we're looking at is historical and, and finding this, putting it you know, near the dawn of the universe, technically, is, is just mind-blowing. And even looking at near-Earth objects, even the moon, we're looking back in time. The sun, we're looking back in time yeah. in terms of seconds and minutes. But it's you know, we're not looking at what's happening there right now. We're looking at what happened there seven or eight minutes ago or, you know, yep. seconds ago. And and that's uh, basically the only thing in real time is what's happening right in front of us <laughs> before our noses. And then we look up into the sky and everything we're seeing is... Past history. In, yeah. in, you know, millions of years old, billions of years old in yeah. some cases. You know, you know, Andrew, when you look at me, you're looking straight back to the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a different thing. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yeah. And as much as it entertains me to give you a bit of a serve in that regard, I'm going to let that one go through to the keeper, <laughs> to use a cricket analogy. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and even and with um, future telescopes still in the planning, uh, there's there's probably so much more to discover, which is even more exciting. Absolutely, yeah. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. 
so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Still, he's still here. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, our next topic, Fred, uh, involves your um, observatory yet again. Um, we, we've uh, talked about a few uh, discoveries and, um, and findings, which is the same as a discovery, I imagine, uh, involving the Australian Astronomical Observatory in recent times. Uh, this one comes from, uh, from your part of the world, but it also involves uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. And what we're talking about is uh, a survivor from a supernova. Now, as I understand it, a supernova is a pretty big cataclysmic event, and I wouldn't imagine there'd be too many survivors, but um, you've found one. Indeed, we have, that's right. And in fact, this is work uh, led by my colleague Stuart Ryder, who sits in an office about three doors along from mine in in Sydney. Um, And he's um, got a a team of people he's worked with, Um, one of whom is a particularly interesting character because this story goes back to 2001, the 10th of December 2001, um, and to a very well-known Australian amateur astronomer, a man by the name of the Reverend Robert Evans. His day job was being a United Uniting Church minister, but by night he was one of the world's best-known supernova hunters. Um, and, and that's a very special talent. Um, but what Robert Evans did, and we call him Bob because that's what we call him, uh, <laughs> Bob, Bob was uh, uh, gifted with an amazing ability to remember um, sort of fields of stars in his telescope. Mm. So what, what he did was he, uh, he sort of scanned pretty well every night, I think, around a long, long list of galaxies. And galaxies are, as you know, they're these objects we've just been talking about, gigantic things containing hundreds of billions of stars, uh, and, and they're at very great distances. And in, a, in an amateur telescope, uh, you can easily pick them up. They look like faint smudges of light. But, of course, they're surrounded by stars, many of which are, most of which are actually members of our own galaxy. So Bob had this real capacity to be able to, to memorise those fields of stars, which meant that as he went through his list of galaxies, if there was a new star in the galaxy, i.e. a supernova, he was the first to find it. And he had this incredible track record of visually finding uh, supernovae, probably um, a longer list than anybody else uh, in the world. That's extraordinary. Uh, it is. That is just amazing. Like, like a, photogra- a photographic memory. It's almost something. like that. That's right. And in fact, uh, sadly, that you know the the requirement for that kind of memory has has decreased because now um, all the amateur astronomers use electronic cameras, yeah. and all you do is feed your image from the electronic camera into the computer and ask it to compare the one you took last week, and if there's a new star there, it shows up immediately. That's how they found Pluto, isn't it? Comparing two photographs. That's correct. Exactly. Gosh, I'm good. I am. You're very good. Do you remember the date? Um, it was 1930, wasn't it? Yeah, February 1930. Oh, two for two. 
not bad, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so um, so so this particular supernova that we're now discussing, if we ever get to the story, <laughs> it's, it rejoices That's in the too name. Too busy showing off. Yeah, there you go. Rejoices in the name Supernova 2001 IG. Uh, that's how Supernovae are, are, are named. And it was found by Bob Evans. Um, mm. Bob, by the way, still going strong. He um, he turned 80 last year, uh, but he's still very keen on astronomy and uh, lives in the Blue Mountains to the west of Sydney. Not uh, far from where I am right now. There you go. That's mm. right. Um, I also he, believe there's a singer-songwriter named Bob, Bob Evans, but that's a different story. Oh, you're thinking of Bob Marley and the whalers. No, no, no. That's Bob Evans. <laughs> I'm sure of it. We do a lot of whaling in astronomy as well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> especially when the weather's cloudy. Anyway, um, uh, that aside. So, all right, fast forward now. Um, well, fast forward a little bit because when it was discovered, it was very quickly realized that this was an unusual supernova. <clears throat> it was uh, something called a Type 2b stripped envelope supernova. And what that means, um, supernovae, as you might guess, come in different types, and a type 2b is one classification. We normally think of supernovae as stars that have got to the ends of their lives and just um, run out of hydrogen fuel, and then they collapse and blow themselves to pieces in a spectacular explosion. And indeed, that's why you can find them with small telescopes, because they outshine their host galaxy very often. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, th this one was a slightly different type. A stripped envelope supernova means that most of its outer layer of hydrogen <clears throat> has gone before the explosion happens. So in, in other words, it's a star that's kind of evolved and it's blown its hydrogen off into space, probably in a fairly gentle way. Uh, but um, something has then happened to make it explode. Mm. So what what is that something? Well, it, it, it's, uh, the inference is that there is another star, a companion star to the supernova, whose outer gaseous envelope is, is basically falling into the supernova star, if you see what I mean. It's gravity pulls it off. Um, the star is close enough that you can have this exchange of matter between the two objects. So the stripped envelope supernova is sitting there, but it's pulling material off its companion. And when that material gets to a certain level, it becomes unstable and it explodes. And so you get the supernova explosion. Oh. Now, that's a scenario that's fairly well understood, but we've always thought that the victim of that sort of event would be the companion star, that there wouldn't be that much left after, you know, this thing explodes right nearby. Um, so this is where the surprise of the new observations come from. And we can now fast forward to the present time because Stuart Ryder, my colleague and his uh, team, have looked at Supernova 2001 IG with the Hubble Space Telescope um, some sort of 17 years after the event. And sure enough, the companion star is still there. For the first time, they have actually detected this surviving companion star. That's amazing. And it, what, sort of, what sort of condition is it in? <laughs> it's probably a bit beaten up, but it, but at least it's there. Um, I mean, we I don't think we have yet done detailed observations of that star because it really, even in the Hubble telescope image, just appears as a faint smudge. It's not really giving us much uh, to go by. But I, I'm sure this work will continue. And particularly once the Hubble telescope's successor, the James Webb Space Telescope, is launched in 2020, uh, then we'll have a much bigger eye in space to look at some of these really interesting objects that are out there.
Mm, yeah, it's quite a discovery, and uh, I suppose that means that you may well be able to observe other binary systems and see if, uh, or former binary systems perhaps, if you know where they are, yeah. and see if it's happened elsewhere or is likely to happen again. I'm sure it is. Uh, these things is. <laughs> pop up from time to time. Some have been spectacularly recorded in history. Uh, and yeah, they and they and they don't last very long. I suppose that's one of the the things about supernova. You just um, you've got to be in the right place at the right time and look in the right part of the sky to to catch them. That's right. In fact, usually you know that that period of peak brightness is a matter of weeks, uh, if not days. Uh, it's a fairly brief rise to spectacularness, and um, and uh, uh, then it's a question of you know, tracking down the way the, the, the light decays from the supernova. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this is, um, this is a very interesting story, and I'm delighted that it has the uh, Australian Astronomical Observatory at its heart. Lovely. And what did you call it, a stripped envelope something or yeah. other? Yeah, how's your stripped envelope? Well, yeah. well, it just goes to show that going to the opening of an envelope can be exciting sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Mm. All right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast, episode 101 with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, a listener question. This comes from Hannah. Uh, I'm a UK listener and I love your podcast. It's really fantastic with about 17 exclamation marks after that. I'm kidding. Uh, I have a question which should be short and sweet. I'm an airline pilot and also a big space and cloud enthusiast. I've been fortunate enough to see some really amazing noctilucent clouds, although in my 11-year career I've only seen them twice because the little rascals are so hard to catch. Uh, Below is a photo from a flight to Moscow. Uh, From what I understand, they're usually found just before dawn in the summer months. I remember hearing that there was uh, a debate about whether they are made of space dust or ice crystals. If you get a moment, could you shed some light on this? And also, would you class them as space clouds or earth clouds? Thanks, Hannah. Hello, Hannah. Thanks for the question. Airline pilot. Oh, I'm flying soon. I hope hope you're flying my plane. That'd be nice. (laughs) Now, noctilucent clouds. We've talked about these before, Fred. So um, Hannah's been lucky enough to see these. What can you uh, what can you tell us about what she's uh, observed? So uh, Hannah's doing better than I have because I've never managed to see them. And just to um, kind of you know fill in the, the gap, what are noctilucent clouds? They are clouds that shine at night, basically. Uh, um, but Clearly, they've got to have some mechanism for doing that. And it's it's a bit like the same way that we see satellites. We always see satellites after, after sunset or before sunrise. And it's when we are in darkness, but the upper, upper layers of the atmosphere are still being illuminated by the sun, which is below the horizon. So, that, so we see satellites reflect by reflected light. Yeah. Now, noctilucent clouds are not as high as satellites. They are still firmly in the atmosphere of the Earth, but they are far higher than any other clouds that we know about. Um, They are, you know, you can kind of draw a line at 10 kilometres or so for normal clouds. Uh, There's not much. There are a few cloud layers that take place above that. But these noctilucent clouds are between 75 and 85 kilometres 
above the surface of the earth. They That's are extraordinary. Very high indeed. Yeah. And when you think that, you know, at 10 kilometers high, you're above 75% of the Earth's atmosphere. You're above a lot more of it uh, when you're at 75 to 85 kilometers. Mm. Um, no way that you would ever see them in daylight. They're very tenuous. Oh, hang on, Fred. For the Americans, that's 50 miles. Oh, sorry about that. Yes. Um, in fact, well, let's do it more accurately, 47 to 53 miles. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry about that. That's right. Um, we've got to be multi-unit. Yeah, we people. do. <laughs> Uh, the, um, the, I'm glad the, we don't have to give time calls like we do on radio. <laughs> yes, that's right. No, that's all right. The 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 uh, thing about them is that they are, they're, they're, you know, they're they're very sparse. They're fairly rare, as Hannah has suggested, that you don't often see them. And as I've said, I've never seen them. Normally, you see them um, not very far from the pole, sort of at latitudes maybe 50 to 70 degrees both north and south of the equator um, and that's because well partly because you get these very long twilights particularly in um, you know in the in the summer months at those latitudes and and in winter uh, you've got um, basically you've got uh, much much longer nights at those higher latitudes uh, and so um, the, the there is probably also though rather than a uh, so, so what I've just said refers to, you know, how observable they are, wh whether you would see them if they're there. But of course, there is also the question that they probably do not occur at latitudes closer to the equator, because the fundamental uh, mechanism that causes these is the condensation of ice crystals. So we know they're made of ice crystals. Uh, and that's sort of answering one of Hannah's questions, mm. although in, in many ways the idea of dust uh, is also right because the dust particles, these are microscopic dust particles, might well act as nuclei for the ice to build up around them. So they are ice crystals and um, that, you know, that's what you'd expect. Cirrus clouds, which we see very commonly, are ice crystals as well. But these ones, the noctilucent clouds, are probably much more, uh, much finer crystals. They probably don't have the same sort of structure that the lower ones do. Um, so are they space clouds or are they Earth clouds? Uh, a really good question. Um, the They are clearly connected with the earth uh, because they you know they they occur at a particular height above the earth's surface but they are very near that boundary between the earth's atmosphere and outer space and so you could sort of look at them uh, as space clouds the um they have been well studied, actually, by the scientific community. Back in 2007, uh, a spacecraft called AIM, and AIM stands for Aeronomy of Ice in the Mesosphere, the mesosphere uh, which is where these clouds are. That was a satellite that was launched directly to study noctilucent clouds, and it was the first one really to record them, um, you know, and record the shapes of these clouds. Um, but w what I was going to say was the... the um, key thing that came from the AIM satellite was that the the overall shape of these uh, um, noctilucent clouds uh, is very similar to clouds at much lower levels, what we call tropospheric clouds, clouds that are, you know, at the kind of cirrus level. So they've got similar shapes, and that suggests that the dynamics of the atmosphere that form them is similar. Even though the atmosphere is much more rarefied where the noctilucent clouds are being formed, there's still the same sort of 
wind patterns and things of that sort that give rise to these uh, noctilucent clouds. So um, I think they are definitely Earth clouds rather than space clouds, but they're nearly in space. Yeah, yeah they uh, are. They're just way out there. Way out there. Uh, we also know that they occur um, ar around Mars as well. However, these are not – usually these are clouds – we believe that they're clouds of carbon dioxide crystals rather than water ice crystals as, as our Earth-based clouds are. Mm. But they do they go up a bit higher on Mars because, um, uh, because Mars has lower gravity. They extend up to 100 kilometers or 62 miles above the surface mm. of the planet. Um, and in fact, they're the highest clouds discovered over the surface of a planet in terms of you know, the diameter of the planet itself. Yeah. And of course, you look at gas giants and they're basically made of cloud and oh, gas, so that's right. th that doesn't count. It doesn't count. No. 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 Uh, it's interesting to me how Mars is so similar to Earth and yet opposite in many ways. Um, that's you know, right. Uh, water, uh, water ice versus carbon dioxide ice. Um, uh, smaller well, planet with bigger geological features compared to us, and and yeah. the um, and the night sky uh, or the, the the dawn and dusk sky is the opposite colour to ours, and it's all just yeah, it's it, quite it's, quite it's, amazing. It's not, and yet there are dramatic similarities, and and you and I have spoken about this before, but it's Mars has got almost exactly the same tilt of its axis as we have. Yeah, it's got almost exactly the same day, twenty four hours forty minutes. And it also has almost exactly the same land area because there's no ocean on Mars. Mm. So the, yeah, the like, like I said to you last time, Fred, it sounds like someone was practicing before they so made the Earth. Yeah. <laughs> made the Earth. It's very, you very know, interesting. Could be right. Yeah, could, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly obviously. make a good discussion slash debate. I reckon. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, I'd yeah, recommend but, reading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and you'll prove uh, that somebody did make the Earth. Yes. Somebody yes, started that fast, did the, the, the fjords. The, 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 the white mice uh, yes. orchestrated the whole thing. And the answer is 42. 42. And right. uh, the answer to your question, Hannah, we hope you have provided and uh, we hope we have provided for you. And uh, if you don't agree with us, then the answer is 42. But uh, yeah, keep the cards and letters rolling in. And uh, we do appreciate your feedback, which uh, is ongoing. Oh, and thanks to everybody who uh, congratulated us on our 100th episode. Um, that's very nice of you. We, we do appreciate it. Uh, Fred, thank you. It's been fun as always. And fun talking to you too, Andrew, and I hope we can do it again soon. I hope so as well. Uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and thank you again for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends and spread the word and share us on Facebook and all those other platforms that we seem to pop up on. There's so many I can't even remember what they are. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast known as Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.